listening to the silence, being a witness to the present moment is like this. So in this winter's retreat, it's to simplify Buddhism into a very simple way of practice is to surrender to being a witness to experience in the present. So witness, the Bhutto is not a judge, it's not discriminate, but it's awareness of the present moment is like this. And to be able to do this, you, you must be patient with the way it is, rather than being caught up with your own emotional reactions of impatience or boredom or restlessness or these kind of <clears throat> conditions arise easily on winter retreats. We learn very much from boredom and impatience. Somebody tells you you should be patient. It's a kind of true but not right, right but not true recommendation because who is it that has to be patient? Is there somebody? Is it personal? Is impatience a personal quality that you identify with? Is boredom a mental state that you identify with? Then you become bored person or impatient. And then if somebody tells you you should be patient, you take that very personally. Ajahn Samito said, I have to be patient, but I'm not patient, and on and on like that. So you start thinking, seeing yourself as a separate personality that suffers from impatience, boredom, doubt, worry about the future, guilt and remorse about the past. And then we ask ourselves, are these really me? Am I really guilty person or an angry person or a greedy person? Am I really impatient? Am I really bored when I should be patient? and inspired, I shouldn't be greedy, I shouldn't be angry. These are the judgmental conditioning that we all have, because the intellectual abilities about how things should or shouldn't be. So we pass judgment, we identify, with our fault, what we consider our faults. We can, even to consider oneself as virtuous is a kind of conceit. Who's virtuous? Ask yourself. Who is it that's virtuous? And try to find a permanent person that's permanently virtuous. You can't do it. Because when you're operating from Sakya Ditti, or the ego, or the personality, then that just confuses you because 
you're trying to find out where do I fit in, where do I belong? Should I be a monk or nun or not? How should I practice? Who's the best teacher? And on and on like that, we get caught up in doubting ourselves, doubting the monastery, doubting the meditation we're doing. And doubt, when we identify with doubt, then we become a doubting personality. We become all the time what we cling to, what we identify with. And so that is a cause of suffering because we're binding ourselves to sankharas, to conditions, to phenomena that is changing, undependable, empty. It's utterly meaningless. And then we look at the society we live in and the world situation and we see it from personal viewpoints. We have preferences for the right, the political system or the left. We have views about Buddhism, about we feel righteous, we can be very righteous and I'm right because I know I've been a monk for all these years, so I'm always right, and you're just a novice. And what is that? If I should pull that one on you, it would be, you know, I'm being very conceited. Because as a person, where is the real tomato, the real personality, the the permanent personality of Ajahn Sumato, I haven't been able to find it. The collection of memories and ideas. So as Ajahn Sumato, I can still suffer after all these years when I take sides, when I have strong views and opinions, about you, about me, about the world, about Buddhism, about anything at all. What I really appreciate in the Theravada school is its basic teaching, because it's very simple and very precise. Sapesankaranicha, all conditions are impermanent. And when you begin to, am I a condition? Is that my true nature? If I'm a body, if I'm this body, then I'm a condition. I'm a sankhara. And definitely that's impermanent, isn't it? At my age, you feel very strongly the impermanence of age, of a lifetime. So, identification with the body is how you've been, how we've all been conditioned. You know, so from the day you're born, you're a fully conscious human form. And then you get told what you are. And then 
cultural attitudes about boys and girls and right and wrong and good and bad are instilled in us. So in meditation, bhavana, the Pali word that we use, this is advice from Buddha, who what is a condition is impermanent, it begins and ends, it is born. This body was born 88 years ago. So it's a sankara. And yet if I identify with it, you know, if I see myself only as an old body, you know, that's a pretty unpleasant perception to hold, to identify with. Because so much of my personality was formed in youth, when I was a child, when I was a teenager. And then teenagers, you know, see old people as in a different way. How many teenagers like to talk to old men or old women? So, you talk to children of your own age, or when you're young, you talk to your age group, or still attractive people that are older, but generally speaking, you know, old people can be dismissed because they're no longer interesting for me personally as a young person. But in bhavana and reflection, you know, when you really understand your body, when you're looking at it, when you're observing it, because you can observe, you can watch your body, you can feel it, it's such a sensitive condition. He gets uncomfortable very quickly and tired and hungry and restless. And when you're young, when you're old, it's just like this. But that which is aware of the body, no longer criticizing it or wanting it to be otherwise, is the gate to the deathless awareness, conscious awareness here and now. And that's not cultural. It's not a sankara. It's natural. And in the Thai language, because the Thai culture is developed mainly from being highly influenced by Theravada Buddhism, they talk about what's natural as dhammachat, dhammachat, which means the word dhamma, what's natural. So just this word natural, or in another Thai word meaning just ordinary, it's like this, is dhammada. The word dhamma kind of resonates through the Thai language as a part of their cultural conditioning. But in the West, we think of nature as something we going out to look at the trees and the mountains and so forth. Nature is, we're having climate change, nature is changing, nature is out there, we've got to preserve it. 
what's natural. I remember my mother telling me I just should be natural, my real self, and I couldn't figure out what she was talking about. What's natural? What's ordinary? Here and now. And it's always here and now. Experience is always now. You can imagine the future having experiences in the future. So we have fantasies about experiencing something on a holiday or a new monastery or meeting a real friend or a person. In the future, we can make images of that. But that sankara is here and now we're creating in, through the mind. And the mind, as you're all aware of, is a very restless condition because it's forever changing. Mental states are, you know, in the process of change. You can't find stability in thoughts or in emotions. But here and now, conscious awareness is not Buddhist, it's not Christian, it doesn't belong to any religion, it's natural to everything. Everything is natural. What is begins, ends, what is born, dies, that's the natural way of Sankara. So ask yourself if you are a Sankara. Am I a Sankara? I've asked myself that just to see what happened. And then reflecting on the body. Am I the body? The body is a Sankara, definitely. So then you realize you're not the body. The body is not self. Am I really a man? Because the body is a male body. Is that my true nature? Is masculinity? The masculinity is a perception you acquire after you're born. Femininity, these are words, concepts that we created by human beings and languages. All languages have these concepts. So languages are sankharas. And I think one of my really liberating insights was when I finally realized all language, all words are empty phenomena. That means every word, good or bad, wise or stupid. So what are you left with? You can't think without words, without sankharas. And so you're left with a silence of being here and now, conscious awareness here and now. 
the sound of silence. The reality of silence is here and now, wherever you are, even in a noisy situation. So what is liberating is to realize this for yourself. Because the rest of it is just bondage. You know, society is suffering all over the place. You hear, you know, how the war in Ukraine and who's to blame for it and fake news and Trumpism and it was Brexit a good choice or was it wrong? You know, we question that. But Brexit is a made-up word, you know. It didn't exist when I first came to England. So, you know, it's become a trigger for forming opinions. Being pure British or pure English You know, these are identities, the clinging to concepts. As Puto, as conscious awareness, we're aware of this clinging, way we cling to views and opinions. It's like this. It's not about, you shouldn't cling to anything. It's not a kind of command or even a suggestion that you should let go of everything and not cling to anything. But the Buddha is advising us to observe clinging to sankharas is like this. Now, sometimes in Buddhist circles, they have, you know, you've got to let go of everything. You've got clinging is wrong, and we've got to be free from clinging. And it's kind of true, but not right, right, but not true. But who is clinging? What is clinging like? What clings to physical form, to a body, to a perception? And when you begin to really respect and love the silence behind the sankharas that are changing, coming and going, try to cling to silence. Try to cling to the sound of silence as a person, and you can't do it. So listening to the silence, you have to let go. But before you can let go, it's wise to see the suffering you create by clinging to anything, good or bad, right or wrong. So Buddhism, you know, Buddha Dhamma is as expounded by the Buddha in these suttas in the scriptures. Isn't about you've got to let go and destroy your personality, you've got to change, you must be kind, you must not hate, you must not get angry. You know, there's all kinds of righteous statements like a good bhikkhu you know you have these exemplary teachings about being a really 
perfect bhikkhu that keeps every precept in the Vinayas, rigidly keeping to them no matter what, even sacrificing your life. And so these are ideals. But Vinaya is also a form. Moral precepts are forms. And it's not that you've got to get rid of morality and Vinaya, but it's, it's learning to not cling to it, to trust awareness according to the shifting conditions that we're subjected to in these human bodies. So when the Buddha established the Vinaya, he first said there's a Dhamma and then there's a Vinaya. It's a form, not a command or a moral demand on us, but a helpful, useful tool to live within a structure that's not personal. Because we didn't make up the Vinaya. So, it's, you know, we assume it was established by the Lord Buddha. But when we receive ordination, then we are using the Vinaya. We're given permission to use the precepts, not to cling to, but to use for reflection on the way it is. So in regards to greed, you know, we try, remember as a young monk at Wapapong, uh, trying to not be greedy. We had one meal a day and I wanted to conquer greed, which I identified with anything that I ate. And so I went on fast, tried all kinds of experiments to conquer greed. And so, you know, this was coming from me, Tomato, not wanting to be greedy because it's not what a bhikkhu should be. Bhikkhu should be not greedy. That's an ideal. An ideal bhikkhu doesn't exist. It's a beautiful ideal, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not the way things are. So greed, instead of trying to get rid of it, because that you're making it personal, and a kind of war against hunger and all kinds of ideas and perceptions you have of greed and personality, your own personality, rather than struggle with trying to conquer greed and anger, you take the witness position, they are like this. When greed arises, it's like this. This way of reflecting gives you a kind of patient acceptance and learning from greed. You learn from greed. You learn from anger, rather than ideally trying to resist them, fight them, get rid of them, destroy them, 
rubbish your personality. So everything's grist for the mill. Each one of us has our karma, so it's not going to be the exact same conditions and reactions to life that everybody shares. We share the consciousness, the puto, the awareness. But other than that, we have to deal with cultural differences, age differences, gender differences, Vinaya differences. And these are all precepts or concepts or ideas created. It's a tool for use. It's a skillful tool for reflection, but not a position to identify with. Because then we become very righteous bhikkhus. And they're unbearable. So, that's not the liberation. When you realize that all the forms that we're experiencing through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking are empty sankharas. That means there's really nothing to them. Buddha used metaphors like foam on the sea or bubbles. They might look real, but when you approach them, they disappear. So this world is a sankhara. Planet Earth is a sankhara. Sun and moon and stars are sankharas. Space is a sankhara. Is consciousness a sankhara? Consciousness is where we experience without consciousness, where there be no space, there be no forms, manifestations, there be no earth, there be no sun and moon, stars, there'd be nothing. So the background of everything is what we really are, what you can really trust is these words like conscious awareness, consciousness here and now, apparent here and now, timeless, dhamma, it's natural. It's not a phenomenon. In all these years as a monk, I really appreciate the forms. The Thai forest tradition, as I learned it from Lung Pa Cha and the Vinaya and all these. Because you learn from them, they give you something to cling to at first. when you're clinging to all kinds of worthless ideas and perceptions and concepts and views and opinions, and when you take ordination, we become a samana, you're conditioned to cling to all kinds of ideas or patriotism, nationalism, 
gender, racial identities, cultural identities, religious identities. You know, when one enters this order, then, you know, one is full of views and opinions. You can't help it. So then in the ordination ceremonies is giving you a sangha agreeing to support you with these conditions, these sankharas. At first we cling to them in order to learn them. I mean, to learn Vinaya, you have to cling to it and study it. But it's like a concert pianist. When you first take music lessons, you have to just play simple tunes, repetitious tunes or scales, and until you're skilled in those movements. But then if you just spend your life trying to play the piano as a concert pianist, you have to let go of just the conditioning. Because the tune, the repetitious tunes are boring. After a while, you know, you don't want to practice. But in terms of practice, it's learning to trust your awareness when you can let go of your view of practice when you can go to something better than just do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. So what I found, for personally speaking, there's no person. <laughs> so, but as a lifestyle, then I recommend it because that's what we're here for, why we have these winter retreats. Why well, we have the vasa, the pansa, and these uh, traditional forms, they're empty. They're part of a tradition. The traditions are sankharas. But are we bound by them? Do we get upset when the things change? Uh, when we get very attached to tradition and rules and regulations and when conditions are changed for us and we can't keep it exactly like we've been told we should, then we get very upset or angry. These are all conditions that we, as the witness, put yourself in that witness position, the watcher, the observer, not the critic, both outwardly and inwardly. So I'm very glad to be back at Amravati for the past year. And this year I've been traveling and traveling for an old man is 
not the same as when I was young. I used to love uh, long distance flights and new adventures and new situations. But I find I'm quite content in my kuti here at Amavati, quite naturally so. But the visits to North America, the Vasa, the Pansa in uh, Chetawana, Temple Forest Monastery in New Hampshire, visiting Ajahn Viridamo in Canada and going to Newfoundland are now very pleasant memories. Going to Thailand in December of last year for the celebration of Wat Pananata. And it's very interesting to go for someone like myself who established that monastery and see what's happened to it. It's, it's unrecognizable from the monastery that I remember when I first went there. Just a forest, a charnel ground for the village of Bungwai. And now it's a kind of famous monastery with an absolutely gorgeous temple. Ajahn Kavali, the abbot, has produced a really lovely Uposara Hall. And they've paved all kinds of, I remember, you know, what Nanachal, as I remember, is walking barefoot on rocky roads and muddy trails and a lot of mosquitoes. And now it's all paved tarmac and beautiful buildings. Because things change. And even to have the king and queen of Thailand to come to the ceremony. A great honor in Thai terms to have the king of Thailand and the queen come to preside over the opening ceremony. It's changing. One knows, you know, when you reflect right now, what Nananachat is at a peak. It's a beautiful temple and, you know, a famous monastery with lots of monks, well supported by the lay community, respected by even the king and queen of Thailand. There are famous monks there. Thousands of people. But then, like all things, they change. Like when, when you think of Wat Pong, when I first went there, in 1967, it was completely changed now. In a kind of very famous monastery with very nice cooties and electrified and so forth. So. Is this right or wrong? Should we just try to really hold to an ideal of a simple forest monastery where we have no electricity, no internet, no anything but just a simple life as we imagine it? You know, that's a view that some people hold. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But then, you, you know, to really live that way, you have to almost become a hermit or a rishi and Thai. But once people begin to realize a wise teacher like Lungpa Cha, you know, if he just hid away in some remote part of Ubon province, you know, that would be one way of dealing with life. But he became available to everyone in the country. And his influence on Thai Buddhism is really excellent. Because like many things, like traditions like Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism can be kind of just be empty traditional ceremonies and scriptural readings and moral commandments. But he brought out the real essence of Buddha Dhamma and put it into practice. And you could see he was a living example of that. He wasn't just a preacher telling you what to do. So what Padana taught now is it's reached a kind of peak and then how long will Ajahn Kebali want to be there? And who'll be next? So big questions go around the Sangha in Thailand when Lumpar Liam passes. He's in his 80s now. Who's going to be the head of Wat Pong, famous monastery? And then there's all kinds of rumors, views and opinions. But all we know is it'll change. It's not going to be the same. Because that's what change is. You can't stabilize, concretize sankharas so they stay the same for eternity. Because then when we look at the history of human civilization, we see so many examples of great cultures arising and disappearing and so forth, because that's the way the sankaras operate. They rise, they get grow up, get old and die. Begin and end. So the world that we identify with is a very unsatisfactory place because it, as much as we might want to keep it a certain way, it's not going to be that way. Some of you must wonder why I'm wearing a hat in the temple. Because I went through some serious surgeries in Bangkok, skin surgeries. They went to the hospital in Bangkok and the surgeon, because I've got this uh, problem with uh, solar keratosis, in which skin cancers form on the, especially where the head has been exposed to the sun. And living in Thailand for years and not wearing a hat or a head covering, then someone with a fair complexion like myself can't resist that. You just get solar keratosis.
So it gets very scaly, itchy, and then this plastic surgeon in Thailand, very skilled plastic surgeon, is when I was living in Thailand, would remove these these subcutaneous cancers by cutting them out. And since we hadn't been to Thailand for two years, he did about 20 or more than 20 cuts on my head. It took four hours under the knife. And at this stage, it's still healing, but it looks terrible. So out of vanity and compassion for you all, I'm wearing this hat. But it's interesting, I mean, I feel gratitude to the surgeon. But then, uh, you know, he used a lot of anesthetic, injected anesthetic into the scalp where he was performing these incisions. I didn't really feel pain or any real discomfort when he was actually performing the surgeries. Ajahn Asoko was with me, and my eye doctor, Dr. Roy, and his brother, Root, were with me in the surgery, and the surgeon was a very good friend, and the nurse uh, that assisted him, they put a cloth over my face with a hole in it so that the surgeon can focus on one spot. And so I was under this cloth and I felt so much gratitude for this kind of compassion, friendship that was being offered to me while I'm being operated on that I felt uh, tears forming in my eyes. And I was afraid that if somebody lifted the cloth, they think I was crying. <laughs> These were tears of joy, not sorrow or pain. So do you experience tears sometimes, tears of joy, when you're, somebody is very friendly and considerate? Things like this, this is natural. Should a good monk have tears of joy? Should a good bhikkhu cry? There's stories about bhikkhus never cry. When your mother dies, you just say, that's the way it is. But the body cries. That's a function of the body, it's not personal. That was my insight. This pity or this tears of joy is just part of the human condition, the physical manifestation of gratitude. So it's a good thing. Grief is another thing that we can indulge in it. You know, like people when they're, somebody they love passes, then they indulge in grief. But that's just because you're attached to the idea that my loved one is no longer here and that makes you grieve and cry. 
But if there's a natural sadness to the loss of a good friend or a parent or a teacher, it's like this. So crying is a part of the human condition. Don't take it personally. So the personality, Sakya always emphasized these three fetters. There's ten fetters, but the first three are really important to reflect upon because they're the obstacles to stream entry, to realizing the path for yourself. And notice that all three of them are created by human beings. They're not natural. Like Sakyaditi is a creation that we identify with, maybe we become a separate person. Silapatabaramasa is the conditioning, cultural conditioning, religious conditioning political conditioning is all Silabhattabharamasa. And then Wichikicha doubt is a result of thinking too much. People are trying to think through their problems, solve their neuroses, get rid of their anxiety, worry, or anger, you know, because we create endless problems just by thinking about the future or remembering the past. So Wichikita is doubt, the result of thinking. Now thinking is a gift, but it can also be an obsession, you know, if we don't understand thinking, if, if we're just caught in thinking, 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 then we end up with doubt, worry, anxiety, fear, which he So, just to encouragement to investigate Sakyaditi, what is an ego? Don't try to get rid of it or judge it, but what is the ego? What is Sakyaditi? as I experience it. So you become the watcher, the witness, to thinking, to the identities you've formed about yourself. You're watching them. They come and go. Cultural conditioning, social conditioning, class conditioning, they're all conditions that we can observe, not get rid of or criticize or get rid of, but to be the witness, the puto, the knower of the way it is. All conditions are impermanent and all Dhamma is not self. So I offer this for today's reflection.